We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. And also joining us in studio today for the very first time is Edward White. He is a journalist at the Newslands International Edition. Uh, For those who don't know, the International Edition provides uh, some of the most comprehensive and up-to-date coverage of Taiwan news and the surrounding region in English that you're going to find just about anywhere. So, uh, Edward, uh, really happy to have you on the show this evening. Uh, Pleasure to be here, Keith. On the show today, a delegation of largely KMT local leaders from around Taiwan paid a visit to China for a meeting with Chinese officials uh, last Sunday. We'll discuss why many see it as an end run around the Thai administration's cross-strait policies. Then more drama with the embattled KMT party assets came to us this week. Uh, Accounts were frozen, so a bit more to talk about there. Then in the second half, lots going on on the international front for the Thai administration. We'll discuss moves to shore up her southbound policy. Uh, And a little peekaboo that we all got of possible military installations on Taiping Island, courtesy of Google Maps. And to round out the show, gambling may be coming to Penghu with a referendum next month on the issue. We've got an industry insider to uh, give us the odds on that coming to pass. Uh, But let's start things out uh, on the political front. Uh, We're going to skip any mention of those typhoons. Uh, We took one week off, and in that one week, Taiwan was hit by two typhoons. So uh, obviously we picked the wrong week to skip, but that's basically all old news at this point, uh, being almost two weeks ago by now. So we're going to skip to the political news for today uh, and on to that Taiwanese delegation that paid a visit Sunday to the chairman of China's Taiwan Affairs Office, uh, Zhang Zhejun. Uh, The meeting was aimed at boosting economic, cultural, and uh, tourism industry cooperation. Uh, And, uh, of course, many here in Taiwan would see that as a good thing, because, uh, as discussed many times on this program, uh, cross-strait ties have hit the brakes since the inauguration of President Tsai Ing-wen in in May. Uh, So, breakthrough for cross-strait relations uh, this meeting? Well, it really depends on who you ask. Uh, They did discuss ways to increase, you know, chilly cross-strait ties, but they also gave a big thumbs up to the 1992 consensus. Uh, which uh, for the Thai administration is, of course, a non-starter, as we've also discussed on the program a number of times. So, uh, Gavin, uh, let's just start from the beginning. How did this all come about? What did they talk about? I'm not sure it was a big thumbs up. Uh, I mean, the, the only person that came out and said it was a thumbs up was the actual Zhang Zhejun of the China-Taiwan Affairs Office, who said after the meeting that they'd all agree to it. Mm-hmm. Well, know, they didn't say no. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm, yeah, they did. Well, they had. They that's another argument that came into the meeting, really, isn't it? Anyway, it began when eight county and government leaders, basically from the counties and cities, went to China last weekend for talks. Like Keith said, now of the eight city and county government leaders, six were KMT county and government leaders, and two were independents, and they popped off to China to talk to the head of China's Taiwan Affairs Office and several other Beijing officials, as they seek basically to boost their regions in respect of tourism, economic exchanges and cultural and also agricultural exchanges, like sales, agricultural goods from Taiwan being shipped to China from these 
areas. Mm-hmm. Well, they had a bit of a tete-a-tete, and basically the Miaoli County Magistrate Xu Yao Chung was the one who was most quoted after the meeting, saying that the delegation called for both sides to choose a broad avenue on which economic, tourism, cultural and agricultural cooperation can be continued. And of course he meant can be continued due to China's refusal to accept anything to do with the Thai administration due to its basically not wanting to accept the 1992 consensus. Mm -hmm. Xu also proposed that Chinese cities and counties identify their counterparts in Taiwan to exchange in city-to-city or region-to-region cooperation on trade and investment and also tourism. Mm. It was okay. I guess it was a good thing in a way, but of course, basically, they're undermining the central government. Of course, these counties and cities that went are basically suffering from a lack of Chinese tourists, which is another claim they're making, because, of course, when one looks at the actual tourist numbers, although Chinese group tourism is down, independent tourism is up. So these Mm. are basically the counties that's like Nanto County was one of them. Of course, Mm -hmm. Nanto County, Sun Moon Lake. Right. So we've been talking about uh, these, you know, indirect sort of channels with China. Even the Thai administration has said that, uh, you know, some of these non-official channels are going to be useful in maintaining cross-strait ties. So uh, that is certainly one way to look at this. And that's the way that uh, KMT chairman Hong Shouju has sort of defended it. She said, you know, if somebody's working to improve cross-strait relations, how can that be such a bad thing? Uh, but at the same time, uh, we we're getting these reports that this was perhaps uh, organized by the Taiwan Affairs Office. Uh, that was a great internet because, of course, they think it might it was organized weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Not just like, oh, let's go to China on the last minute from these KMT and independent heads of cities and counties. They, it was organized weeks, if not months ago. By Chinese officials. By Chinese officials as sort of a, a big showpiece to say, mm-hmm. look, the Taiwan people are here. They like us. They agree with us. That's, mm-hmm. of course, one argument that one right. could give and has and would been given. put a very different spin on the whole affair. It does, of course. And, of course, another, the other spin that's been put on the affair is the fact that the, the government has v- very much insisted, and if you believe in the government, quite rightly so, that no political preconditions should be attached to any cross-strait ties. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the big crux of this pre-political condition was agreeing to the 1992 consensus, which is mm-hmm. what... Zhang Zhuojun said these officials did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's bring Edward into the conversation. Uh, of course, uh, in the past, uh, the KMT has uh, come under criticism for so-called party-to-party relations rather than state-to-state relations. Uh, how, how do you see uh, this playing in, 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 in Taiwan? Is this going to be seen as a, a step forward uh, for cross-strait relations or as a purely political sort of affair? I think it's probably important to think about this in the context of the sort of the longer term cross strait affairs. And so these sorts of visits between KMT people to China or Chinese people to visit specific KMT members in Taiwan, it's, it's not it's not new. It's been happening for, for, for years and years. It happened under the prior DPP administration. It happened through the, the Mao administration at times as well. So I think from the the Chinese side, you know, they used this visit um, for their own propaganda purposes. It was broadcast on CCTV in China. Um, and so it, I, th- I think you need to, to think about it in the terms that China would have definitely had a hand in this and, mm-hmm. you know, they're using it for their own purposes. They use these sorts of tactics um, often, you know, in terms of trying to create bilateral or economic dependencies, uh, sort of a divide and, and conquer mm-hmm. type strategy. Right. Um, and so whether or not anything... S- solid comes out of it for these for the people in these counties you mm-hmm. know in Miali or in, in Hualien or these other places is yet to be seen but 
I think you definitely want to think about it that in, 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 in these broader terms. And in that respect, it's probably something that will continue. Um, you know, it, it may not ever be very popular in Taiwan, but it's certainly something, a, t- a tactic and a strategy that China will continue to use. Mm. Uh, the, Edward brings up a pretty interesting point there, Gavin. I, I haven't seen anything. Were, were there any, like, concrete uh, promises that uh, these counties got from Chinese officials? No, they got a slap on the back and they appeared on national television. I mm-hmm. mean, some might call that okay. I mean, everybody wants to appear on television, don't they? Who doesn't? Well, yeah, well basically, China's, better than radio, right? Well, yeah, I guess you get to see your face, <laughs> didn't you? Because I have a face for radio, so there we go. That's why you didn't see me. That's why we're in this. But career. of course, China has basically said, you know, we hope to have further talks with these areas on trade. And of course, of course, while I mentioned tourism, of course, one of these big other issues is agriculture because, of mm-hmm. course, China has reportedly cut back on its agricultural imports from Taiwan. Mm-hmm. number of industries hit pretty hard by that. Uh, yeah, basically, yeah. So, and obviously, if you come from Nantou or Miaoli, we have a lot of farming, mm-hmm. a lot of areas which are farmed, you know. Obviously, you need to export your agriculture to somewhere. And if certain places in China are willing to buy it, just because you say you agree with the 1992 consensus, although rather dangerous, setting mm-hmm. a rather bad precedent there, I, I see nothing personally wrong with it, basically. Mm. But you know, let's uh, let's kind of take on that cross-strait relations question. Uh, this week we got uh, out uh, a number of polls that are sort of showing slipping support for uh, Taiwan's handling of cross-strait relations. I don't I don't have the particular numbers, but that's that's the main narrative that we're hearing right now is that the uh, public is more and more. Uh, exasperated with how she's handling things, exasperated with uh, the slowdown uh, and uh, some of these, you know, economic consequences for this. Uh, and so the case that the KMT has always been making is that we're the ones that can deal with China. We're the ones that can uh, conduct stable cross-strait relations. You won't see these, you know, economic slowdowns under our uh, handling of things. Um, for the the public in Taiwan, do you think that this visit is going to uh, help make their case, or or are they going to see this as purely just a political stunt? I see it a little bit differently, you know, given the fact that I don't think there was a, a directive from the the high uh, the top brass at the KMT mm-hmm. for these people to go, and as you identified, a couple of them were independents from the, the, the mm-hmm. Pan Blue camp. Mm-hmm. But I think that these people, you know, that it's an opportunity for them to. Um, to get some publicity, sure, um, as Gavin identified, there may be some economic opportunities there. Those are yet to be seen. But I'm, I'm not sure whether this is a sort of a KMT strategy to use these visits um, to, to really help their cause and making the case that they're the party to deal with China. If that was the case, you'd perhaps see different people going on these visits, right? Because mm-hmm. many, some of them that went to visit, they weren't actually the heads of the areas. I mean, the head... Eric Jew from Taipei City, New Taipei City, did not go. His deputy mayor. His went. deputy mayor went, and mm-hmm. several other deputy people went as well. So mm-hmm. I think maybe the top, the top bods were keeping. Oh, I better keep a bit away from that. I might burn my fingers. Right. Yeah, that would have <laughs> been even more controversial uh, had perhaps Eric Jew gone. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to move on and uh, continue to keep things nice and partisan and political. Uh, And moving to another sore spot in domestic politics, uh, with more wrangling over the KMT's controversial party assets. Uh, The ill-gotten party assets settlement committee yesterday said to the KMT uh, that their bank account is frozen. Uh, So, Gavin, uh, tell us a little bit about what this committee is up to and what they're accusing the KMT of doing here. Of course, the ill-gotten party assets settlement committee was created in mid-August 
when the act governing the handling of ill-gotten properties by political parties, <gasps> big breath, and their affiliate organisations was basically established by lawmakers. Mm-hmm. And that was on August the 10th that was established. Mm-hmm. And on August the 11th, the KMT allegedly withdrew 520 million NT from Bank Sinopac and also asked the Bank of Taiwan to issue 10 cheques mm-hmm. worth 52 million NT each. Now, the KMT did this reportedly to pay for party expenses and employees' salaries. But, That's the KMT line. But, but, of course, this did happen the day after the Act governing the handling of ill-gotten properties by political parties and their affiliate organisations was passed by lawmakers. Hmm. Just a little reminder. Oh, all those expenses that we had to the take care of. The timing's a bit off, mm-hmm. if you see what I mean. I do see what you mean. Yeah. So that's what started questions about this, and that is what's led the committee to freeze the KMT's accounts, where the KMT can now make deposits, but it can't actually take any money out. Mm-hmm. Basically, what's another interesting thing is, of course, it was reported that the money in the Sinopac bank account was presumably all ill-gotten. That's right. By the, by the standards that this committee is using. It's using. The committee, right. this is the committee that says it presumes all the money in that bank, Sinopac, was ill-gotten, mm. basically. So that's another reason there was questions about, hang on a minute, they took the money out of that bank account. Ooh, dear. Uh, so, Ed- Edward, has this been a, a drama that you've been watching unfold? Yeah, as a relative newcomer to um, to Taiwan, I've actually been surprised. I think this story is perhaps a little bit underdone. I mean, you've got you look at the the broader numbers that are at stake here. So, uh, I had a, had a look, little look last night. So, the 2014 totals for the KMT assets, and this is, I think, the combination of ill-gotten and um, legitimate assets, was something like 26 billion NT. So that's you know, 890 million US dollars. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of money at stake. And I feel that this is just the very beginning of what is going to be a long and probably very painful process. Um, you know, there's going to be individuals that have made a lot of money um, mm-hmm. out of what has been a long, you know, m- decades and decades and mm-hmm. decades of, of what amounts to theft, basically. And so the in, the investigations are only just beginning. Who, who knows where it will go? And you know, there's going to be lawyers going to make a lot of money challenging these this process as it goes along. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it remains to be seen just um, how it will all unfold. But I, I, I do think it's going to be a, a very long, very uh, painful process for Taiwan. Yeah, mm. of course, the county chairwoman Hong Shouju has said that the party could take legal action to stop a further freezing of KMT party assets and the, the, the how would you say it, the seizure of funds. Mm. She's also said she hasn't ruled out the possibility of initiating, initiating protests, although I don't quite see how well those protests will go down. Mm. If you see what I mean, that, that could backfire rather badly. Yeah. <laughs> the other aspect, I think is also worth considering is just thinking about how much money will have been funneled offshore or into sort of the the bank accounts of particularly wealthy families or companies that may be involved and just how difficult it's going to be to track um, some of that cash. And and again, I just think it's going to be a very long-term... a long-term story. But actually make a quite good book because, of course, we have the megabank scandal going on at the moment and there, of course, have been allegations that the megabank scandal might have been involved in the KMT assets scandal. Of course, that's just the rumour mill in Taiwan and the news channels in Taiwan. Alleging that. But a respectable news show like us would not concern ourselves. We're just saying that people are saying this. We're reporting on the reporting. Yes, yes. So, of course, the plot, technically, if the megabank scandal has been brought into it, the plot thickens, basically. 
quite considerably. But of course, then it depends who's stirring it as to whether it thickens or not. <laughs> Let's see if we can keep that metaphor going into the second half. All right, we are coming up on a break, though. When we return, uh, some MOFA offices may be getting shut down. Google Maps has revealed that Taiwan is building three-pronged white something or others on Taiping Island. Uh, and some uh, gambling stuff might be going down soon on Penghu. So uh, we'll get the take from an industry insider on that to uh, round out the broadcast. And for our podcast listeners, as always, we have a bonus story to end out the program. Where is the happiest place in Taiwan? We've got a report that claims to have the answer. Uh, you want that, right? So uh, a whole lot of good stuff to look for right there when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Edward White. We got three stories to jam out uh, in the second half right here. Uh, all kinds of focused on the Thai administration uh, and their dealings with uh, changing events, we shall say. Uh, up first, we've been hearing a lot of calls over the last couple of months for a reshuffle of the cabinet personnel, the cabinet top brass. Uh, a lot of dissatisfaction with uh, some of the names that made it into the leadership positions there. Well, one official has now gotten the axe. Uh, it's not exactly a, you know, high-powered, high-profile official. It is the cabinet spokesperson, Gavin. Yeah, Tong Genyuan. He was not dismissed. He was asked, basically, would you like another job? And he went, mm, OK. Yeah. So he took another job. More of a back-end sort of job. I don't know. I mean, would you sooner serve as a spokesman or would you sooner serve in the National Security Council as an advisor? Obviously, you, you don't get your face on the TV as much. In fact, you don't get his face on the TV at all. Well, I haven't been offered either job, oddly enough. But anyway, this was happening on last weekend. In fact, last Sunday, the same day that some other things happened in this today's show. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the government announced, the cabinet rather, announced that Xu Guoyong will replace Tong Zhenyuan as cabinet spokesman from October the 1st. And basically, it didn't really explain why Tong was being moved over. Reshuffled. Reshuffled, moved over, told to get out, however you want to put it. But, of course, there is speculation that the move is related to some controversy surrounding some of the comments he made while serving as a cabinet spokesman. Mm -hmm. The most sort of overplayed and plugged and talked about one of which was when he turned around to the press, having been given the job as the cabinet spokesman, simply saying, I'm not going to answer any individual questions or talk to you individually. Mm. Which, of course, as a cabinet spokesman, your job is to talk to people. Yeah. So, you know, that part of the, the job put description. Buttress on his job, really, description. That really so he, yeah. he may have found the better place. He could have done, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, of course, it comes also as certain people are calling for a full cabinet reshuffle. Right. And, and, and they're not just talking about the spokesman, they're talking no. about the premier. Everybody. They're asking yeah. for a lot of people. And I wouldn't call basically the cabinet spokesman opting for another job and him being replaced. As a reshuffle mm-hmm. myself, I would just some bloke gets another job. There you go, simple. I'd, I'd just add if you go back to when the um, cabinet was first appointed or the first um, sort of few tranches of cabinet members were appointed, it was heavily criticised for the gender imbalance. And I think there was comments at the time or expectations at the time that there would be some changes um, in the in the near future, which is about where we are now. And so in that sense, I wouldn't necessarily take the whatever reshuffles that are happening as a sign of anything particularly negative. It was just something that was probably always um, going to happen. Mm. Yeah, Reshuffle ha- was always in the cards. We do have a habit in Taiwan of having reshuffling of cabinets quite regularly. Mm. Of course, the current cabinet has come under fire for containing too many people from previous administrations. 
mm-hmm. and criticism from the DPP and certain other politicians, pro-pan-green politicians, that the government is unlikely to be able to push its reforms through because there's too many people from mm-hmm. previous administrations. Right. But then, of course, the government's had to go to these people for experience, which is why certain people are in the cabinet. Right. So getting criticism from both political camps there, uh, likely to be discussing this again on the show. Uh, But we're going to move on. Next up, uh, we're moving to the military front for the Tsai administration. And Taiping Island is back in the news this week because it found itself in Google Maps. Yeah, not, not the free one. Not the free if Google you go, Maps. If you go to your computer and you turn on Google Maps and you search the Spratly Islands typing, you will not find a picture of Taiping Island. Mm. You will find a lot of nothing. Mm-hmm. Basically, this is the paid. The deep ver- blue sea. This is the paid version. This is the per- this is the up to date time more timely version of Google Earth and mm-hmm. its map services. The ones that basically come very fresh from satellites. Mm. Well, of course, the Taiping Island is a, is a military area in Taiwan, 1,600 miles basically southwest of Kaohsiung, but it has the same postcode as Chichen Island. There you go. There's an interesting little fact for you there. There you go. Anyway, it if was... If anybody was planning to send some post. Yeah, just in case. It won't get lost, yeah. Anyway, what happened was Google's paid earth and map services put the latest pictures up in July. This, this story actually dates from July, so we don't quite know when it hit the fan, so to speak. And on these paid Google Earth and map services, lo and behold, if you zoomed over Typing Island, you found several three-pronged military structures. Mm-hmm. And while, of course, the military and the Coast Guard are saying nothing but all structures and facilities on the island are classified and their functions cannot be disclosed, speculation is rife that they are actually anti-aircraft gun towers. There's also some speculation there might be some kind of early radar warning system. Mm. But looking at them... Anti-aircraft gun towers looks pretty much what they could be. That's Gavin's read on it. To me, they just kind of look like the the little things you put in the middle of a pizza uh, in the box to hold it together, those little white three-pronged things. So clearly Gavin is the uh, stronger expert on this one than I. Uh, Of course, it's not the first time. I mean, you know, there was was a couple of other incidents over the years with Google Earth Mm -hmm. and the... Defense ministry here having to sort of ring them up and say, "Look, can you blow that out, please?" But I don't. Well, who who exactly are they protecting this information from? Because obviously, Google is not the only no, uh, body with satellites. Obviously, obviously, China has satellites. They've got their own satellites. So this wouldn't be news to China. No, obviously, they're, they're trying to. Well, obviously, that's the question. The first question, of course, is how the public even know about this. Mm-hmm. Is a big question. I mean, somebody's obviously leaked this story. Otherwise, we wouldn't know that the military had run Google Earth and said, can you blur this image? Because, mm. of course, governments all over the world are ask, ask Google Earth to blur certain areas. Right. And if you, go to, if, you, if you go to the free Google Earth, even in parts of Taipei City, are blurred. Mm. There's a big part near the Grand Hotel that's a blur. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, that's the shh place. Mm. Right. So uh, sensitive areas uh, that we're looking at right there. Now, how, uh, how, of course, for a long time, it's been a concern that uh, the various claimants uh, to the South China Sea would militarize their rocks and reefs and islands and all this stuff. Uh, Would this be terribly out of line with what other governments have put on their own little uh, ocean features? Well, no, because China have done it quite openly. The, the anti-aircraft? They, 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 they know everything. They've, done, they've built runway, didn't they? They built a runway mm-hmm. recently and they've put anti-ship and anti-air missiles on the one island. And, of course, there's been footage of that all over the way. So, I mean, you can... 
certain defence publications have run a lot of footage of those pictures, but with mm. pictures taken from satellites of these installations on these Chinese islands. So China hasn't actually mm-hmm. even tried to cover it up. Right. Uh, now, I guess the other interesting question is uh, we have uh, been wondering a little bit what Taiping, uh, excuse me, uh, we have been wondering a little bit what the Thai administration's uh, policy is going to be on Taiping Island. Some people thought that perhaps she would move away from the uh, Ma administration policy of, uh, you know, reaffirming so- uh, sovereignty there and making that a big part of their uh, international relations policy. Uh, but to some people's surprise, you know, she uh, has vehemently opposed that uh, Hague ruling that said that it was just a rock. She's saying, no, 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 this is an island and uh, we will assert our sovereignty to it. Uh, and now we're seeing potentially uh, some beefing up of uh, some military capabilities there. So maybe uh, a muscular approach that we're Speculation seeing. Speculation thereof. Speculatively muscular approach. I was, from... gonna, I was actually referring to the speculation of beefing up of military facilities. Yeah, it could just be the pizza box things that I was talking about. It could be. Someone went, let's make a big pizza. A very big pizza. (laughs) Edward, what do you see there? I think um, military commentators have made it clear that they think these are defense Mm -hmm. installations. But that's in the context that over the past few years, um, Taiwan's been upgrading its facilities there so that uh, larger and higher value vessels um, can visit the area. So it would make sense that you would then have... um, appropriate sort of defence installations to support um, or defend, I guess, those uh, those vessels that come through. In terms of um, Tsai and the the direction that she's taking, I guess this would indicate that it's a she's essentially moving in the same direction that the KMT or the Ma administration was in, in this area, and certainly her response to the Hague decision would back that up as well. Mm-hmm. But of course they were probably weren't ordered yesterday. <laughs> I mean, on that, if, if, if the military was going to put air defence systems on Taiping, it, or it, it set out to put air defence systems on Taiping one year ago, two years ago. Mm-hmm. If you see what I mean. But she's staying on that course. On that I course, think is the significant yeah, 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 thing yeah. here. But obviously, they, they didn't just pop up overnight. Yeah, that, 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 that's <laughs> fair, and, and it's also probably good to remember, as you mentioned, that um, when the legislators um, visited legislators from Taiwan visited the island back in July, they I think one of the legislators actually mentioned that these things were uh, either being built or had been built at that time. So it's not a new story. The Google aspect's kind of interesting, but the the fact that these things are under construction and uh, um, going to be used is mm-hmm. nothing new for something. Yeah, for what we don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, so the other aspect, I guess, in terms of the the Google um, satellite pictures, is that while, of course, China has its own satellites, and obviously the US can see everything that's going on, possibly other claimants in the area don't. So the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, some of the other um, people that claim various territorial territorial areas. Um, they may not have those capabilities, so there probably is a reason for Taiwan wanting to keep this um, relatively secret if they can. Hmm. I wonder if uh, Duterte so, opted for the paid version of Google Maps. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. He'd don't be know. missing out if he wasn't. Obviously, you can't tell anyone. If you've heard this show, you can't tell anyone that these things exist. Yeah. <laughs> this whole show is going to be classified. We've got to be careful. All right, uh, last up on uh, these series of domestic political stories that we're looking at right here, uh, and on to the diplomacy front. Uh, So, question for this week, what do Norway, Guam, Saudi Arabia's Jeddah, and Germany's Hamburg all have in common? Well, they are all currently home to some very nervous Taiwanese diplomats, uh, because the diplomatic missions in those 
countries and cities are among those possibly, maybe, being considered for shutdown. Uh, We've been hearing about this efficiency, quote-unquote efficiency plan, for a while now. Uh, Basically, the idea here is to free up resources for South and Southeast Asia. Uh, This would be part of the uh, Thai administration's southbound policy. Basically, they would want to uh, push to increase economic and trade ties uh, with that region, uh, somewhat at the expense of some of the regions I just mentioned, or maybe others. Uh, We've been hearing some backpedaling from some officials recently, so it's a little unclear. But, uh, Gavin, give uh, give us a scoop on this one. Yes, this is a report that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is set to close four representative offices, or at least four to begin with. And like you said, the four are in Guam, Hamburg, Jeddah and Norway. Now, the Foreign Minister David Lee has said that the move is aimed at cutting back on some resources in order to open new trade and representative offices in other countries Mm -hmm. and territories, basically. Mm -hmm. Now, these reports have said that these four offices will be axed as a first stage of this move. They haven't put a time frame on it, basically. They've argued that basically Hamburg, well, Hamburg's obviously a city in Germany. Germany has a capital called Berlin. Why not just dump everything in one place? Mm-hmm. Simple as that. Germany is not like a very big country. You can have one office in Berlin. You don't mm-hmm. necessarily need regional offices in Germany. Right? Now, Guam, of course, the government or the Moffa people who are involved in this argue that Guam lost its significance in recent years. Some could argue against that and some could argue for that. Of course, there are quite strong ties between Guam and Taiwan, believe it or mm-hmm. not. Lots of Taiwanese actually live in Guam. Obviously, if you're in Guam, it would be hard to uh, commute to another office. And, of course, Guam has long been considered like a tourist thing. Guam, mm-hmm. People from Taiwan go to Guam on holidays. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just te- theoretically just down the road. More or bit across a large bit of sea, but mm-hmm. it's just technically across the road. Yeah. And, of course, Guam is also home to many, 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 many U.S. soldiers mm-hmm. of various forms. Mm-hmm. Marines, Air Force, Navy, Army. Basically, it's a big American air base. So, that, you know, when they came out and said they're going to scrap the Guam one, op- opponents of this move did say, hang on a minute, why are we scrapping that one? Not Guam. Not well, because, Guam. Because of the, tra- because of the ties right. with Taiwan and Guam and because it's a U.S. air base, a U.S. Right. military facility. The case that they were making it's, for Norway. It's a nice island, but mm-hmm. it's still a military facility. Right. The case they were making for Norway is basically a lack of diplomatic progress with the country. Mm-hmm. Still getting the cold which, shoulder which I don't understand from the that because technically Norway is a country, and if you live in Norway and you want to come to Taiwan and do business, you've got to get your visa where from? Sweden? Denmark? Right, well... I mean, it's all right if you're in Sweden, you can drive to Denmark across a bridge. Mm. If you're in Norway, you've theoretically got to leave your country to get visa certification or visa things if you want to come here mm-hmm. that Norway I don't understand yeah. Germany I understand basically mm-hmm. you can move it to the capital of course the other one is Jeddah in mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia which I found a bit odd as well why they would want to pull that office and maybe they have another office in Saudi Arabia I don't know mm. but they basically said that the argument for getting rid of the Jeddah office is basically it only deals with pilgrimage, pilgrims from Taiwan to the Hatch mm-hmm. once a year mm-hmm. Uh, All right, so uh, another policy push that is seeing some pushback uh, from the Thai administration. But if you want to know, Taiwan currently has 117 representative offices globally. 117, not bad. Uh, There's one not too close uh, to my hometown. There's one in San Francisco, so that made life... How many are there in America? Uh, There's a couple. I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head, but there's more than a few. Um, 
And uh, thankfully, none of them are uh, facing the axe. So uh, I guess I guess we're safe for now. New Zealand? How many are there in New Zealand? Uh, we have two. You have two in New yeah. Zealand. Yeah. Two, two in New Zealand. All right, not bad. Where are they? Christchurch and Wellington and w- Auckland. Wellington and Auckland. On the same island. That's right. How dippy is that? Really? <laughs> <laughs> they could have opened one in Dunedin. They that could have. have made sense, wouldn't it? Eh? You ever been to Dunedin? No. 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 I've been to Tapuki. Okay. <laughs> we're keeping that all in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so what, what, what do you take away from all this, Edward? I, I think, um, I mean, in terms of the individual offices that are closing, it's probably just a normal rationalisation of um, foreign services. Uh, the Guam office, my understanding is that it used, in the past it was used to service the various Pacific Island uh, countries in which type, uh, Taiwan now has its own offices there uh, and, and it, with its partners in the Pacific Islands. Mm-hmm. Um, Norway was quite interesting, um, as, you, as you said, because... They, the, the comment I heard was that they have no interest at this stage in opening a Taipei office. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, Taiwan wasn't going to go and um, stay, stay there. Mm-hmm. Um, Saudi Arabia, I think they do have an extra or they have a second office there already. So it's similar to the Germany situation. Mm. Um, in the broader context of the southbound policy, I think it's interesting to see some, some action finally. Uh, there was, there's been quite a lot of criticism that the southbound policy has been quite vague for a, for a long time. It was mm-hmm. identified before the election. It's been talked about as a policy for the past six months. So perhaps we're starting to see some action on that front. Right. And we, uh, Ty actually came out and gave some clarifying comments uh, on what exactly the southbound policy is going to look like yesterday at uh, Zhengzhou University, a little bit of a summit on uh, South and Southeast Asian studies there. Uh, she gave some comments. Uh, I guess the big thing that came out of that was she said it's not just going to be about economics it's going to be about people to people contact as well that was that yeah, she was mentioned line. an increase in student numbers and an increase in student numbers and she also said that Taiwan she also hinted that of course Southeast Asian countries have changed in in the recent years and in order for Taiwan to adapt to this change in Southeast Asia Taiwan needs to adapt to regional change mm. and uh, lucky for us we actually have a clip of her saying just that so here it is over the past centuries countries in Southeast Asia have transformed in major ways regional integration is moving forward and raising the profile and competitiveness of Southeast Asia and Asia as a whole. It seems like the whole world is rebalancing to Asia. Taiwan must respond to these changes. These changes and challenges require that Taiwan redefine its role in Asia's development so that we can advance the interests of our country and also that of the region as a whole. That is the impetus behind our new South Farm policy. All right. And while we have a wealth of clips, we might as well use another one. Uh, here's her talking about uh, the education policy going forward for the southbound push. It will support more than 12,000 young Taiwanese to volunteer, work and study in Southeast Asia and also expand scholarship programs for young people from Southeast Asia to come and study in Taiwan. We hope to increase the number of Southeast Asian and South Asian students in Taiwan by 20% per year to reach almost 60,000 by 2019. All right, so that was Tsai Ing-wen yesterday at Zhengzhou University, uh, kind of fleshing out the idea just a little bit. Edward, I mean, what do you, what do you see there? Uh, based on what you heard yesterday, based on what we've been hearing, is this getting to be more practical? 
I, I actually found the direction a little bit underwhelming in terms of the southbound policy has been talked about as a really big repositioning or, or pivot of Taiwan's economy away from China. It's important in that context. And yet they're talking about language and cultural exchanges. I think the business community will be looking for something a little bit more solid in terms of actual trade deals. Mm. And so obviously these things take time, but you'd want to see uh, a bit more focus on things that are going to be helping business and the economy rather than perhaps students and, and cultural exchanges. Because we've said it before, there's also been complaints in the business sector about there's the lack of support mechanisms. So, OK, they go to Southeast Asia, they go to South Asia to open their businesses as part of the new southbound policy, but if it all goes belly up... Where do you get where, your where insurance? Do you, where do you get your insurance? Where do you get your support from? Is, mm-hmm. the, government, is the government going to be there to back you up? Well, that's right, and there's some pretty tough questions for the government about whether they're actually going to be able to get these deals. Um, Especially with pressure from China. Well, that's right, yeah. I mean, China has the the veto power pretty Mm -hmm. much over most bilateral um, conversations that Taiwan will have with anyone. So Mm -hmm. if if China feels that Taiwan and Vietnam are getting too close, China steps in. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, there's a again, there's a some tough work for the government on this, and I think to parade uh, language and cultural exchanges is, is is very good, and in the long term will be very important. It's not going to be giving Taiwan much in the short term. Yeah, it doesn't really matter how many Vietnamese students you have in Taiwanese colleges. It doesn't really change the basic dynamic that you're talking about right there. Th- those sorts of things do work. They've been proven to work. They're long-term, you know, but they take 30 years when you mm-hmm. have a group of students that perhaps go from one country, a big, big number over a long term. Mm-hmm. Sure, by the time that those people are professionals and captains of industry, those those links do do help and those language ties do help, but they're, they're decades away. What mm-hmm. people are looking for now is some, some actual deals that will help Taiwan. Hmm. All right. So we're going to round that one out there and move on to our last story for the broadcast today. That being, Penghu residents are about to be asked to weigh in on whether or not they want to allow casino gambling on their island. This is actually the second time uh, that they've been asked this question. Uh, Back in 2009, they had a very similar referendum, uh, which actually failed. Uh, Not by overwhelming numbers, but by, you know, very considerable margin. Uh, This time, the controversy is still quite strong on the issue. In fact, uh, one politician in the Oppose camp uh, found his car vandalized by gambling supporters uh, with uh, some threats to his family's safety uh, on spray-painted on his car. So a very contentious issue will obviously have big consequences for uh, the tiny island community out there. Uh, And what's more, there's also some huge questions remaining, uh, you know, despite the fact that gambling has uh, been legalized in these uh, islands around Taiwan, subject to these sorts of referendums, uh, there is no law that gives a framework for how it would actually be implemented. So that's another big question that has yet to be worked out. So a lot of big question marks hanging over all of this. To get a handle on it, uh, we've got on the phone right now uh, something of an industry insider, Martin Williams. Uh, he writes for Gambling Compliance, which is a global industry news service for the gambling industry. And we have him on the phone right now. Martin Williams, good evening. Yeah, good evening, Keith. So let's just start off. There is a little bit of a history here. Uh, of course, gambling was sort of kind of legalized uh, for Taiwan's outlying islands, uh, but there's still no casinos out there. Uh, could you lay out uh, that history for us a little bit? Okay. Um, well, the... Uh the legislature uh, modified outlying island or, or outlying island regulations so that uh, any island under Taiwan's control could hold a referendum and 
with that referendum uh, accepting casinos uh, give a legally binding, send a legally binding message to the legislature that it, it could open casinos in those areas. Uh, as time has gone on, um, the Taiwan Strait uh, uh, island counties of Penghu, Jinmen, and Lianjiang, also known as Mazu, uh, have turned out to be the only three that were, were feasible. Um, and Penghu was first off the block in 2009, and they defeated that referendum quite quite uh, comfortably, much to the surprise of a lot of the people supporting the casinos. Uh, that defeat was 56 to 44 percent, with a fairly low, low turnout of 42 percent. Uh, and that came as a, a real shock to many people who thought that uh, the people in Penghu were going to be very appreciative of having a, uh, a potential new injection of a lot of tourism dollars uh, and other investment from major international uh, gambling companies. Uh, and what that uh, referendum resulted was to put a dampener on on enthusiasm for uh, for the process for some time. However, uh, in the years following, um, much uh, well, mostly thanks to the uh, initiatives of an American company called Widener Resorts, led by Bill Widener, a former Las Vegas Sands executive, um, who saw that the uh, the Mazu proposal could actually provide something that would be a little bit off the grid, but but, but uh, very appealing to nearby Chinese gamblers, uh, went all out to try and get uh, national government and legislative support for a Mazu referendum. And in the end, that referendum was held in 2012. It passed 57-43%. Um, since then, unfortunately for them, or for those who supported the casino, um, the legislature has uh, had tremendous difficulties in trying to pass the casino legislation that would enable the opening of those casinos. That delay uh, was further extended by the occupation of the legislature by the Sunflower protesters uh, in March and April 2014, which uh, stalled legislation uh, and, uh, and the following year eventually pushed wider resorts out of Taiwan altogether. Uh, since then, uh, the, the residents of Penghu, however, have reactivated their interest in a, in, a, in a casino referendum. Now, according to the rules, um, they were able to do so three years after the failure of the first referendum, but it took a little while longer than that for them to actually get back into the, into the groove. And uh, it uh, was actually uh, and ironically precipitated by the election of a new DPP mayor in Penghu in November 2014. Within months of his, of his inauguration, he approved the referendum application, and that's where we are now. Let's talk about some of the opposition to the legalization. Of course, the DPP has said that, uh, you know, they're going to allow the referendum to occur. They're going to stay out of it. But the Thai administration says that they basically oppose uh, the legalization of gambling uh, on Penghu. And uh, obviously, a number of the residents do. I was talking about that lawmaker a second ago. He is from uh, what's known as the Tree Party in Taiwan. Mm. So uh, as far as the uh, opposition groups goes, well, what are the concerns about uh, opening up gambling? Well, the concerns uh, about opening up gambling in Penghu are, are, are really quite pretty much is what you would expect. Um, the local people are concerned, those who, ex- who oppose the casinos, are very concerned about the introduction of um, vices well above what might already exist in Penghu, such as prostitution, drug abuse, infiltration of local communities and institutions by triads and, and so on and so forth, uh, in addition to all the you know, standard issues of problem gambling. 
Um, these are typical concerns for any community where a, a, uh, a casino is being proposed. I don't see, however, any uh, major change, a difference in, in, in uh, degree or kind in, in terms of these criticisms compared to 2009 or, or indeed the Mazu referendum in 2012. If anything, the debate uh, in Penghu has been less dramatic in, in national terms than it was last time, uh, where it was something of a novelty, the, the whole debate over a casino. This time, the, the debate seems to be largely confined to Penghu media itself, although there has been a, an uptick in coverage of this issue in uh, national newspapers and national broadcast media, but nothing on the level that, that Mazu received in 2012, for example. I would also uh, agree with you that, that, that the, DPP administ- the DPP party uh, the, the national headquarters came out some weeks ago to oppose the introduction of a casino in Penghu, despite their local politicians actually supporting it. Mm. Um, and that process is kind of ironic for political watchers, because, of course, the DPP has long been a champion of grassroots democracy uh, and has placed the national headquarters in, the, in a dilemma whereby if local DPP... Uh, voters or local DDP um, um, captains of industry uh, support a casino, then it's very difficult for the, the national headquarters to come out and criticize their interests uh, without seeming rather hypocritical. On the other hand, I, a, a slight correction might be in order. I'm not aware that the Thai administration itself, that is to say the government, has come out on either side on this issue. Mm. Uh, it is very, very true that uh, ahead of the Madu election, uh, when Tsai Ing-wen was uh, the opposition leader, she came out and said quite explicitly that she opposed uh, casinos in Penghu. Oh, but certainly since the, uh, the trouncing of the KMT in local elections in 2014, Tsai Ing-wen has taken a much more circumspect position on casinos in Penghu. And since becoming president, she has also, I think, uh, been careful to stay away from being seen to be taking a partisan position on this point. And one of the reasons for this, perhaps, is that the government is in the process of re-establishing the credibility of its casino legislation. It should be pointed out that the legislation, as I, I said before, was withdrawn from the legislature after, after her election, along with all of the other pre-inauguration KMT-era legislation and is in the process now of being rebadged for possible resubmission. And for the government to come out and explicitly say that it opposes the process might, in certain circles, be reasonably seen to be an interference with due process. Um, but certainly the DPP itself has come out quite explicitly with their, uh, uh, their spokesperson saying quite recently that uh, the, the DPP opposes but respects the opinions of the Penghu people. I mean, Martin's Gavin here. I mean, do you think if the Penghu referendum is a yay this time, that the legislation for casinos will be speeded up, or do you think we'll see the same slow pace we saw before after the first Penghu referendum? Oh, well, that's an excellent question, and in fact, that may be a much more a much more important question than whether this referendum actually passes, uh, because the, the 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 casino legislation has had a a fairly rocky trip through not only the legislature, but the, the very drafting process, which saw one of the um, outsourced drafting organi- uh, companies uh, based in Macau uh, being thrown out of the process uh, for effectively uh, incompetence. And uh, the, the, the legislation itself 
there are, there are still chunks of it that remain unfinished. And so this legislation, this uh, referendum is going to take place on October 15, which is uh, two or three weeks from now, um, with, with key questions still unanswered, such as what will be the paid-in capital for the company that comes in to run the, the casino? Um, what is the confirmed share distribution between the, the company that runs the casino and other shareholders? Uh, what, you know, how many casinos will be able to open? These are, these are basic questions that have not been answered. And that, that may itself be a problem for the referendum. But even then, let's assume, Gavin, that the referendum does pass. We then have the problem, as I said before, of there being a lot less public, publicly expressed interest in this casino uh, referendum in, uh, this time around. And uh, given all of that withdrawal of momentum, uh, it is very possible, it is very possible that the government will find it more difficult to uh, resubmit the legislation to the legislature, and it may also be possible that uh, certain groups of, uh, for example, DDP legislators uh, who have a strong social uh, uh, social interest uh, may uh, form a block and attempt to block the, legis- the legislation at some point in the committee. Of course, OK, so the, the referendum passes, theoretically here, we're talking hypothetically because it's not till next month. The government finalises its legislation, irons out all the problems. Who, who is going to go to these casinos? Who are the casino operators looking to attract? Local people, foreigners, Chinese, well, Hong Kongers? The, the China, China has said that they're not going to let their nationals go to uh, these island chain casinos at least all key questions and 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 the the, the interesting interesting thing about Penghu is that um, up until the up until uh, May last year when uh, the Chinese official Jiang Jun I, I believe he's the head of the Taiwan Affairs office I'd have to check that uh, did a tour of Jinmen and warned the, the Jinmen government that if they built a casino in Jinmen that they would sever all connections with the island including postal and transportation uh, up until that time, um, uh, both uh, Jinmen and Mazu believed that they had a chance to somehow get a casino industry up and go, up and running, even though people in Mazu were more enthusiastic about the process than in Jinmen. Uh, Jinmen, of course, already having a is already a self-sustaining area because of its uh, because of its Gaoliang alcohol industry. Um, uh, uh, unfortunately. While, uh, unfortunately for Penghu, while those two island groups were were in the running and appealing to nearby Chinese coastal business, Penghu was always going to be the also-ran. It was going to be the black sheep, effectively, even though on paper it's got a very appealing location, uh, good infrastructure, and the best airport of the three, uh, and, and, and the least problems with weather. Uh, the other thing that Penghu has going for it, however, in the wake of the disaster that befell the other islands in terms of the Chinese opposition, is that Penghu, from day one, never claimed that the Chinese market would be its primary market. Uh, the, the, the Penghu people have always said that, they have, that they're going to appeal to a mixture of uh, Taiwanese customers, Japanese customers, and a mixture from elsewhere. Presumably Hong Kong, or the people from Hong Kong tend to prefer Macau. Um, and, but the, the Taiwanese-Japanese market were, were, was, was the primary market for these people. Since then, I have spoken to individuals who are working for the, working for the, the yes question for the, the, the referendum campaign, 
who say that they are still confident in the event that the casino opens that they can get Chinese business or Chinese customers, despite the fact that, as you say, the Chinese government has been clamping down on not only gambling within China and uh, gambling in, in Macau, but also the activities of high rollers in gambling jurisdictions in Asia and beyond, particularly Korea, the Philippines, uh, and increasingly Las Vegas. So uh, there is still that danger, of course, of Penghu, that if they too aggressively market for the Chinese uh, customer, that that may uh, attract a certain degree of uh, uh, tension, uh, perhaps in cross-strait relations. Right, I mean, how do you think Taiwan would cope on the gambling thing? Obviously there's gambling in Singapore, gambling in Malaysia, gambling for foreign nationals in Vietnam, gambling in Macau. Yeah. Well, I mean, Taiwan would have to do something rather glitzy and basically to attract people. Yeah, um, you know, everyone has their own idea of glitzy, but that, that's ex- absolutely right. I mean, there is a marketing challenge here. I mean, why, why would a person fly from Tokyo to Taipei and then to Penghu, spend all that money and all that time when they could just as easily hop across to Korea or, or fly three hours or three and a half hours to, to Macau? These are valid questions. Um, but... As you know, with with lower tier casinos, uh, oftentimes the the challenge for uh, management is to work out what their niche market is. Now, clearly, um, there is a there would be a potentially strong Taiwanese market for Penghu. Although I should add that the local pro casino forces in Penghu are prepared to sacrifice the ability of Penghu residents to enter those casinos in order to get the legislation passed which means they, would, they are technically relying on the Taiwanese customers from Taiwan itself, from, from Taiwan proper. So uh, that remains a challenge. I mean, can they attract the, the numbers to justify the formation of an, uh, the, the construction of a so-called integrated resort, which is not just a casino, but a, a four- or five-star hotel, um, uh, a bank of retail offerings, entertainment, um, uh, meeting and, and conference locations and so on and so forth. The whole package has never been about just a casino. That's part of the pitch. It's about the, the bigger so-called integrated resort-style offering that Singapore um, uh, blazed, blazed the trail with in, in Asia. And as you say, it, you know, the, the marketing question remains quite mysterious, particularly because uh, without um, professional and experienced managers on board in, in a in a, uh, a Penghu casino setup, with no indication yet of who those people might be, it's not really clear what their strategy is going to be. All right, so a party in Penghu, maybe. Uh, the referendum is coming up on October 15th. We should know the results by the end of October. We were speaking there to Martin Williams of the Gambling Compliance Publication, a global industry news service for the industry. Uh, Martin, thanks so much for joining us this evening. It's my pleasure. All right, and that just about does it for our serious stories for today. Uh, and we are on to our podcast bonus story, and we're going to be talking about uh, a ranking of the happiest places in Taiwan. And I think the one that came out on top might uh, surprise a couple people. Shinzu City. Shinzu City. It scored the highest this year on the Happiness Index ranking. That, of course, was carried out by the Economic Daily News and the Nanshan Life Insurance Company. Mm. The results of the res- 
the results of the survey were released on Tuesday of this week. Mm-hmm. And apparently Shinzu City also improved the most of the 22 counties and cities from 10th last year to, of course, the top place this year. Mm. And Shinzu Mayor Lin Jurjian has been quoted as saying that the city has three highs, those being high salaries, high education levels and high birth rates. Mm. There you go. It's also the youngest city or county in Taiwan with an average age of 37. Mm. Penghu County actually ranked second on the list and Hualien County came third. Even without gambling, they yep. ranked pretty high. Hey, but Taipei City reported the lowest governance satisfaction rates among Taiwan's six special municipalities. Wow, wow. And it dropped from 7 to 11 on the happiness index. Mm, so lots so of... 7-11s, isn't it? It's a ah, sign, you see. It's a could sign. could be a sign. It could definitely be a sign. Uh, for any of our uh, listeners who are just jonesing for uh, methodological news, uh, the way that this survey was put together is it was based on actually the OECD happiness survey uh, that kind of rates countries around the world on their uh, happiness rankings. So uh, that was uh, the the framework for how these uh, surveys were put together. Uh, and I, I think probably what we're seeing reflected here is just the uh, fact that, you know, you have all that new tech industry that's flooding into Shinju. It's becoming something of uh, uh, Taiwan Silicon Valley in a lot of ways. So more young people moving there from around Taiwan, more very talented people. That's why it's such a young count, uh, such a young city at this point. Job opportunities, it's kind of on the upturn. So uh, that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, uh, it was, it's quite interesting. There were some of the things on the index. For example, there was the, the subjective happiness. Because in the subjective happiness section... Mm-hmm. There, were, they were, there was work-life balance, government right. satisfaction, personal safety, and working conditions. Mm-hmm. There was also environmental quality and living conditions. Hualien obviously got the uh, highest marks for environmental... It did. Environmental quality and living conditions were best in Hualien. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Penghu actually got the best work-life balance. It did. Work-life balance, government satisfaction, personal safety, and working conditions. I wonder how those things would change if you added a uh, you know, casino into the mix. I guess we might find out. Uh, Edward, were there any surprises for you on this list? No, I've, I've spent an embarrassingly small amount of time in Shinju, so I'm, I'm not <laughs> in much of a position to comment. I was surprised Hualien wasn't higher, and um, and down in Taidong as well, pretty pretty special parts of, mm-hmm. of Taiwan. One question, though, I mean, are these surveys, these are th- questions that go out to, to people, or is it based on economic metrics within the cities? It, the charts are really odd. yeah. If, if if you look at them, they, they don't make a ton of sense. Uh, and I, I did a little bit of reading on this. I think my best guess, I mean, I couldn't find anything concrete, but my, my best guess is that it's sort of a mix of uh, metrics, like uh, ac- economic metrics and survey results. So I think it's a mix, but it, it wasn't uh, totally transparent. But Maybe it's more of an indication of the, the loyalty of your citizenship in, in, a, in a particular area. You know, if you come from somewhere that you, you feel obliged to say, oh, yep, everything's good here, nothing to see, please move on. Are people being true to their school? Yeah. Um, well, and another interesting thing is of the major municipalities, Taichung actually came out on top. Taichung came out on top, didn't it? Yeah, that was, that was right, because we had Donovan, of course, our correspondent there, was a bit chuffed mm-hmm. about that. Tainan came uh, lower than we might have expected, too. Yeah, it was a bit odd. Mm. Uh, All right, so I guess uh, folks out there listening to the show can kind of uh, reflect and uh, think whether or not they agree with these survey listings. Do you think that your place of residence made it to the appropriate place on the list? I would have thought Taipei would have been a little bit happier. I feel like folks in Taipei are relatively happy. But uh, I I guess we have to trust the numbers on this one. 
Uh, and we will also have to leave it right there. That is it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. You can look for it at 8.15 in the evening. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes. Uh, and also, most weeks, you can find it on the ICRT blog. Depends on whether or not I have time to put up a blog post. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Yeah, good night. And joined as, uh, for the first time, maybe more frequently in the future, we shall see, Edward White. Edward, glad to have you on. Thank you for having me. Good evening. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Oh.